to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And we have a wonderful guest with us today, Lisa Clifton Bumpus. And Lisa and I have known one another for a very long time. And one of the great treats that I have when, when I have the clinics out in Half Moon Bay in California is Lisa picks me up at the airport and drive, we drive together to Half Moon Bay. And the great treat is we get to have that time together to talk and to catch up. And, and I always ask her what she's been doing recently. And there's always some interesting thing that, that Lisa, you've been diving into. And so I just am so looking forward to having this time to share with you and Dominique, because I suspect we're going to go down some fun rabbit holes. But I think before we dive down the rabbit holes, I should ask you to introduce yourself a little bit, because you have a really, I think, a really interesting background that you bring to training. My name is Lisa Clifton Bopus. I'm in California in the uh, Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. And I've been in animal training probably about 25 years. I don't remember the start date because it was a gradual dipping of my toe into the process. I started long before many of the organizations that exist. Um, As a matter of fact, I was a member of APDT, the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, and my certification number was 306, I think. Um, So I've been around for a while. Yes. I started out in dog training um, before the reinforcement uh, revolution, if you will, and someone introduced me to clicker training and then introduced me to Bob and Marion Breland, and the world took off from there. I essentially got into reinforcement training because I'm a retired disabled police officer with some pretty serious back injuries. And I, at that point in time, had two 100-pound Rottweilers uh, that as part of my physical therapy and recovery process, they wanted me to walk around on leash. (laughs) And you couldn't do that back then based on the technology we had available So I I worked in dog training, um, been uh, on the boards or as an advisor on the boards of several of the major organizations that are still in existence and burned out and thought I'd go hide in a zoo just so that I could be around animals that I love, but not have much responsibility, which ended really quickly uh, (laughs) because I was assigned to the fruit bat night house at the Oakland Zoo and fruit bats hung from the ceiling. And I, and I often say um, that it was like being surrounded by 40 plus chihuahuas um, that were hanging from the ceiling because a lot of their personalities were very interesting and, and uh, things that I could relate to. One of the keepers caught me training an animal without permission, an animal who was aggressive and guarded the door. And uh, I- that? The fruit bat, yes. <laughs> and what he would do is he'd hang, he'd hang up an upside down. That's how they hang. He would hang in front of the doorway. And if you approached the doorway to go in and out of this common area, he would charge at you. Now for a fruit bat, that means crawling across the, the <laughs> ceiling at you. Uh, and he would make agonistic sounds. And um, I had, I knew Jesus Rosales Ruiz. And I wanted to work with this fruit bat to be able to create a conversation about how do I get out that door without using force intimidation or any of the other tools that were traditionally used at that time with animals, not in the zoos necessarily, but with animals to make them get out of your way. And um, I started just using physical distance as a way to reinforce him to move him out of the way. And the keeper saw me shaping behavior just by using my distance to the fruit bat and couldn't figure out what I was doing because he'd never seen anything like that. And really quickly, within a couple of days, I had a hand signal for, his name was Beethoven, the fruit bat. And I would point this way and Beethoven would 
move out of the area of which I would reinforce because I would move away because his aggression was fear-based. He was trying to make everybody go away. Yes. Well, that must have had quite an impact on the other keepers. It, it did because they only knew of rudimentary reinforcement-based training back then. And I didn't have food and I didn't have a That's whistle right. and I didn't have a clicker. Mm-hmm. And they, it just didn't make any sense. So they asked me to start working with them and teaching me- the methodology. And my first training team was in the, the fruit bat group. What really changed my life was one of the keepers had heard that I was doing this stuff, training, um, and that the animals were changing their behavior in a very pleasant way. And uh, her name is Amy Phelps, and she's now at the San Francisco Zoo. And she said to me, have you ever met a giraffe? Her, mo- her methods were that she'd introduce me to the giraffe and that I would become spirit bonded to this animal, which happened the very first moment when you stand yes. eye to eye with a giraffe. It's an incredible thing. And I was uh, included into her team where we started training 11 giraffe, doing lots of different things that at that time nobody had done before because we were just doing straight reinforcement uh, behavior modification and shaping. So now today, yeah. uh, what I do is I work with many, many different kinds of animals through the keepers and I'm teaching keepers and zoo administrators how to build stronger training programs so that if we need to crate train an alligator and then train the alligator to let us pick up the crate he's in and move him a significant distance away, that the individual in the crate is completely calm and relaxed and is under stimulus control. So I have training teams uh, in many different zoos that I work with. That is so cool. It is very cool. Which animals have you, so you've worked with giraffes, bats, alligators, what else? Jaguars, lemurs, um, uh, warthogs. Oh, oh my goodness. Meerkats. Um, did a little bit of uh, consulting on a young kookaburra that they were just beginning to do their training program with. Then we were designing that process. Um, it's really not about a zoo. It's more about working with the people who I always fall in love with and the animals I always fall in love with. So You let me feed a giraffe and do a leg stretch on a giraffe, which is really phenomenal. It's an evil plan. <laughs> <laughs> that was and- so much fun. And, and the reason why I became so fascinated with the modern horse training movement and in particular, Alexander Curlin's work with horses is that she started giving me answers to questions I had about animals that were physically injured either by age and the, the animal that Alex was talking about um, doing the leg stretches with had severe ring bone, upper and lower ring bone in all four of her feet. And um, the prognosis for her living out a long natural life was not good at that time to which she did die of old age uh, because of the great stuff. But Alex was the person that introduced me to things like micro shaping and being able to build movement through a single muscle movement and an arc and loop of a pattern of movements. Because when you're on the ground with a giraffe, it's an extremely dangerous thing because they can kick a distance and the, the force with which a giraffe can kick um, has been evidenced as in cleaving a lion's skull open. Wow. Um, it's a, a great defensive mechanism. Yes. So yeah. I love I love the clinics. I love uh, Alex's presentations and I love all the horse people that I get to meet because they always are always giving me a next piece for me to consider, which I immediately go back and, and work with my my zoo people with. So thank so you. So all, all all the info you get in the horse clinic, you don't do you own a horse? No, when I was 13, actually when I was seven, so we're looking 1962, I learned to ride with the uh, the United States Army's pentathlon, pentathlon International Competitive Horse Riding Team. And then when I was 12 or 13, I bought a horse um, that was a quarter horse thoroughbred mix who had 
almost been saddle broken, but not by traditional methodology. And he was my, my best friend. And unfortunately, I've not been back in the horse community uh, other than having great friends that have horses. So the three of us have just had an amazing weekend because we are fresh from science camp. So, of course, I want to ask both of you, what are some of the things that popped out for you from science camp? So we, we had a weekend where we got to indulge with listening to presentations from Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz and Mary Hunter, and we had Feldenkrais lessons, and I did a little bit of sharing, and it was just a phenomenal, <laughs> and, and we had, and it's all set up so that people can jump in with questions and discuss. So it's such, I think, such a unique experience because it's not just a straight webinar. Uh, the rabbit holes that we can go down are uh, just wonderful. So what would be, what would be some things that popped out or that sort of rose to the surface? What would you say, Lisa? Uh, Mary Hunter um, spent a significant amount of time talking about constructional uh, training, which is yes. the core and basis of what I do with the zoo animals, because we construct what I call whole life plans and constructional training allows you to break learned behaviors and build towards final things that are like medical procedures um, and husbandry procedures that might be fairly invasive. So you don't start at the top of the apex, the hardest stuff. The components of each behavior is very carefully built and they link together leading to the next piece. And it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful and important process, I think, that we've yet to fully um, chew and absorb and metabolize into our training. So I, I, I love any kind of yes. like that I get about that and spend yes. quite a bit of time, 18 yes. pages of notes <laughs> in this clinic, considering that. So a constructional life plan sounds even more all-encompassing than just, I want to take a constructional approach to getting an alligator in a crate or a horse on a horse trailer. Yeah. The process is taking a look at each individual with what information you know about maybe their lineage or their species or the environment you're going to have them in and how you're going to interact with that individual. And this applies directly to all of the domestic companion animals that we have in our care. What kinds of skills do they need to have to be able to thrive in that man-made environment um, or woman-made environment or woman-controlled yes. environment that's going to give them the rules of the road, so to speak, so that you can have a conversation about behavior so that an example would be bringing it to horses, manners for gating so that when you're on the ground and you want to lead them through, uh, have them come to a gate when you're going to let them out onto pasture or to come back in to the barn at night. There are different components about waiting at the gate until the gate is completely open, uh, not nudging or running through you or running over you, keeping personal space. All of those are component skills that make the process of going through the gate out onto pasture or back in or into a stall well-learned behaviors. And my big piece about uh, constructional or whole life plans is that it's really about permissions and conversations of, will you do this for me? Or how do you feel about doing that right now? And those are critical data points from my perspective for welfare and health. So that if you're building something or you have a completed behavior and you request that it happen, you cue that it happened and it's always happened before and you get a no response or a non-response, that's volumes of information for us then to stop and check on the welfare and health of that individual before asking them to do it again or forcing them to through many different ways um, right. Right. to that that one of the examples that one of the people in the clinic was talking about was that if I remember correctly, that the horse uh, under, under consideration for conversation needed to learn how to stand in a foot bath, have a foot in a foot bath. Yes. And that's a series of different kinds of behaviors, our human behaviors that influence the animal's behaviors, as well as 
once we could train the foot bath to go in, uh, the foot to go in the foot bath, then the duration of the behavior and maybe the sensation for whatever the chemicals are in the foot bath, be it cold or warm. Um, and with the giraffe I mentioned earlier, Tiki, she had to have warm foot baths and icy cold foot baths, depending on what was going on with her feet or liniments or any of these things um, and different kinds of chemical soaks that stink and sting yes. and, yes. and all those things. Those are all components for her whole life plan. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Which brings up that lovely word that we were chewing on, mm -hmm. which was agency. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and what does that mean? And how do we give it? When do we give it? Mm -hmm. and, and I know that we've had conversations in those drives uh, to Half Moon Bay on um, consent. And what does consent mean? And it's a very different, like the medical consent forms and so on. So agency. What does that mean? Where? How does it? How does it come into play in uh, working with our animals? Agency, from my perspective, and I want to be very clear about that from yes. the work that I do, uh, is uh, about an animal having voice in the process of controlling their environment so that if they want to go in the barn, they go in the barn. If they don't want to go into the barn, they don't want to go into the barn. And being able to have that kind of control over their environments. And a lot of that does has to deal with preference that we are just scratching the surface on for animals about where they like to be, who they choose to be with. Is that part of their paddock or is the part of the barn warmer or has less draft? And why, why do they want to stay there as opposed to in another place? And respecting that um, conversation, if you will, when we're asking an animal to do something and if they say no, and unless it's absolutely required to happen at that time, honoring that no means known for them as equal as much as it does for us when someone asks us to do something where there's a negotiation process. And one of the points that uh, came up, I think, on the first day of science camp, it's an interesting perspective on this because we talk a lot about meeting our animals' needs, but we also have to meet our needs. Yeah, we're, we're a community where we make a lot of decisions for our animals. We'll change jobs, we'll change houses so that our animals are in a good environment for them. We're a lot of us, I think, are the kind of people where sometimes we'll set our own needs apart and really try to give the very best we can to our animals. But it's interesting, too, when I, I like that discussion when we were talking about, yeah, but we need to also uh, look at our own needs. And I, and I think part of the, the conversation or the consideration that we need to have with our animals and about our animals is that sometimes our needs are in direct conflict with who they are. Uh, example um, that I can give in my own personal life is I have a rescue dog named Brew who came out of an extreme deprivation and hoarding situation. Um, she lived in a home, in a room in a home with 23 other dogs. Um, there was a significant amount of food insecurity and most of the behaviors that we think about for companion dogs don't exist in Bruce's lexicon. And I love touching and holding dogs. I've always been able to overcome uh, their uh, discomfort through reinforcement behavior modification strategies so that it became a conversation very much like I was talking about earlier. When they said no, that meant something else. But Brew came into my life about two years old with very firm opinions about all people um, being bad things when it came to being touched. And she's very touch averse. Now, I, we've now developed a relationship where there are times and places where I can touch her and times and places that it is absolutely not. 
And there's a conflict there when I want to. Yes. And she doesn't. And I think of that often with horse riders who will buy a horse just to ride it. And uh, a no comment or no response for the horse is seen as willful, stubborn, a mare, you know, all these negative labels we put on them. When in fact, it could be, it's a bad day. It could be that their back hurts or their feet hurt or something scared them or whatever. And, and learning that from brew or, you know, going back to Tiki the giraffe, um, no had an extreme amount of information within it that I had to pay attention to. Yes. Alex, for you, when, when, um, when we were talking, when we were having this conversation about care, caring for our own needs, what, what was important for you in that? Well, I was thinking of various clients and one in particular uh, in talking about how important it was to give her animals choice. Mm -hmm. She was feeling as though her needs were not being met. And so, you know, you can develop all sorts of plans that would be great for her animals, but they would be in conflict ultimately with her ability to carry them out because she was feeling left out of the equation. What about my needs was, was the response. My animal wants uh, to go out, so I have to get up and let my animal out. And then my animal wants to come in, so I have to get up and let my animal in. And, my, you know, and, and I just want to sit here. You know, what about my needs? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that idea of developing a constructional approach in which everyone's needs are taken into consideration mm -hmm. is really important because we've, in a sense, we've tipped the pendulum so far, we've mm -hmm. swung it and we needed to swing it yeah. in the direction of, hey, look, our animals are, they're communicating with us. They have needs, they're, they have a rich and emotional life we need to be acknowledging that. We need to be working that into the equation. It's not simply, you know, I want to ride you or, you know, I come after work to the barn, saddle you up, and we ride horse. Whether you feel like it or not, that's what you're here for. I mean, that was, that's, you know, that's the reality. Or I, I buy a dog and I work 10 hours a day away from home. And when I come back, yeah, I'll walk you five, 10 minutes, but I'm really tired. And so, you know, don't be a bad dog. Don't pester me. Um, that kind of thing, too. Yeah. So, yeah, we yeah. had to go the other way. But yeah. now for sustainability, for enjoyment of the relationship, certainly if we can have both ends of the equation um, need. Um, acknowledge, I think it's a, it's a really a win-win and it's possible. That, that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, when the idea of a manned, M-A-N-D, uh, Susan Friedman introduced me to the concept of manned behaviors, which are request behaviors mm -hmm. um, from an individual to another individual that require are requesting a specific thing. And I so the horse that the dog that will nudge you with his nose yes. to get petted to, mm. to, or when the dog brings you a tennis ball and drops it at your feet right that's a request to play yeah um, and they can be much more uh, direct <laughs> from the animal yes. Um, yes. but what I what I when I started playing with and understanding man's and started shaping man's in several different species part of what happened was that. I really felt, particularly in my own home, that I became a servant because animals realized they could ask me to do lots of stuff. Mm. And I only have two dogs, but they had lots of things they wanted me to do for them <laughs> that they couldn't do for themselves. And I realized that really quickly I needed to have this balance um, and trained a cue or my, a behavior that said I'm not available. And uh, it works a, a lot of the time, most of the time. There are times when just like a rude three-year-old who human being who's demanding attention by grabbing clothes and saying, mommy, 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 that still happens. But if I cue I'm not available, then it's a, 
up to me not to respond to any additional. How do you do that? How did I build it? Yeah. What, what is your cue? It's essentially, and since we're on camera, it's essentially this. So two hands, held two up hands palm out, um, which means I'm not available. And it comes from a couple of different places. Uh, in a, a lot of the zoo settings that I work in, we build specific behaviors that say training is done so that the keepers just don't get up or the trainers just don't get up and walk away from the animal, which often causes anxiety. And when you're in the same place with some animals, they will block you from being able to leave the enclosure with them mm. as all of their reinforcement is going when the human leaves. Yes. Mm. So we, tr we started, essentially this started as the um, I'm uh, training is done with reinforcement then placed elsewhere for them, they would see that reinforcement food or whatever would be put out. And it was almost always something high in their hierarchy of choice so that they would go and investigate it. And then a little bit of very much like how Alex uh, will put um, pellets in the pan in a, right. in a barn. Right. And then so walk in, a, in a sense, you could say from their point of view, it's not necessarily a cue that training is done, but it's a cue that says, go look for, for food over there. Exactly. And the while they're looking for food over there, you're, you're leaving. Exactly. So the human language is training is done, but for the yes. animal, it's other enrichment, reinforcement opportunities, maybe to go outside um, or go pal around or whatever. All of those things now become uh, available to them. See, and I think that's a really important thing to add because I see a lot of people that will do the training is done and they walk away and it's sort of like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. you know, because now all the, the social attention, all the reinforcers have just left because they haven't put it because it isn't, a, it's not training is done. It's, this is a cue that says there's going to be something fun over there that yeah. I'm uh, leaving you with. And yeah. Uh, there it is. Go find it, and yeah. while you, and then because you're filling the void, you're not just dropping them into a void. It's always another place for you to go interact and behave, yes. and do other things. Yes. So yes. another example would be with the dog that often is like the three-year-old standing, you know, yeah. pulling on my pant leg. Play with me, play with me, play with me. Is that I have in my living room, a large stack of cardboard boxes and there are boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes. And I may give this signal and then go and throw a handful of kibble or pellets for a horse inside this box of boxes, which this dog absolutely loves. It's her very favorite thing to do. And she will spend another 15 minutes rooting around inside these boxes to pick up these little pieces. But this never, when I say uh, I'm not available, it never just means that it's crickets, that nothing else is going to happen. Right. It means mm -hmm. that there are other opportunities for doing things that are high level interest of the animal we're working with. It's a beautiful constructional approach because both of your needs are met. Yes. And, and I think that's the piece that was so important because training can end up being very one-sided. You know, we can train using positive reinforcement, but still have it be in the mindset of the universe revolves around me. You know, I'm training you for my convenience. I'm training you to line up next to a mounting block. Here's a goodie for it. I'm training you to accept me on your back. Here's a goodie for it. But it's the universe revolves around me. Yeah. Or we can be go the other way, which is the universe revolves around you, mm. which to be real, it does. And it's a horse. <laughs> um, but, you know, and but it, it's, it, it can be a lopsided, it's a lopsided relationship. And when the universe can re revolve around both of us, when both of our needs are met, it's, it's much, it's, it's uh, it sustains itself better. It's uh, it's just more satisfying all the way around. It it's also there's a safety piece um, in that uh, all, almost all the animals in our lives live in some form of confinement or another. Yes. 
And people usually mean really good, hopefully, people mean really good things for them. Uh, and if they're in a training program, they're getting all high rates of reinforcement of one kind or another, whether you're doing a scritch on the neck, you know, or um, a piece of apple or, you know, for a dog, a piece of freeze-dried liver or, you know, fill in the Whatever it is. Yeah. Yes. But with larger animals, there's a, a de-escalation, an emotional de-escalation that we have to uh, nurture uh, and support that I think is really important. So that a couple of examples would be um, with uh, apex predators like the alligator. And in one of the zoos, they do go on exhibit with the alligator. So they're actually sharing space with him although it's a good distance away and it's always a team of people and there's safety protocols involved. But if you have a bucket of fish and that <laughs> is what he really likes he wants. and he really wants, and you're going to get up out of the training session and walk away with that bucket of fish, you might accidentally reinforce him for following you. You might accidentally reinforce him for um, a coming up off ground movement, which is very much the way alligators take down prey. And you yes. don't want those things. So, but if he knows that the all done cue means that there's going to be a bunch of fish floating in his pool, or you're going to turn on the hose that streams into the pool that has bubbles and he loves to play in the bubbles. And that's part of this all done cue. Then it is an emotional deescalation. It changes the arousal level. It, um, and, and the way we, always work really, really hard to do it is so that the muscle tone, the movement is calm and relaxed, however you define it for whichever animal you're talking about. But that's, again, that's about, I think, really important about agency and, and choice and, and all of the hot button words that we're using right now is that we have to provide lots of different kinds of opportunities for either us having agency for ourselves when our relationships with our animals or agency for an animal to be able to start and stop a session because of whatever that we, we don't always know the, the why they're starting. Stopping. Right. Right. That they can, they can initiate. And if they say not today, it means not today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that you develop ways within your training program that because we always have to stop, you know, there's a point where you've, you've got other things to do. You've got to leave. I can't stay here all day training you. So how do I leave gracefully is really important. And, and that's why the, I think the constructional approach and uh, what, I, what I've called the whole life training process is, is that you take something that whoever it is you're working with is a core life lesson our life skill that they need that makes both of your lives better. So they understand that a training session ending is not the end of the world or that um, you might take a break and you might need to step away and refill your bucket or have a think um, about what you're doing next. And it's not the end of the world. And that's all woven into the components or pieces of what they need to learn so that it transfers along through the rest of the training in their lives. You know, the, when I start horses out and I'll say, now we're going to put just 20 treats into your pocket so that the session is, it's, it, you're forced to stop because you only have 20 treats in your pocket. You didn't pour the day's grain ration into your pocket where you can just train and train and train and then suddenly discover that, oh, oops, I think I've created some problems here. You only have a few treats in your pocket. Well, one of the main reasons that I did that was for what you just said, for horses to learn that the training stops and then it starts again and it stops and it starts again. Because when you, when you put a lot of treats in your pocket and you go up to the horse and you do some targeting and it's really fun so you keep going and, and you use up, oh, oops, I've just used up a week's worth of, of food without even uh, recognizing that I was feeding that much because I'm having so much fun. Uh, but when you when you have a longer session, you have one session and then it's over and the horse is having fun. And there's that, you know, I can communicate with this person, which is a huge discovery 
and then suddenly it's gone and the world snaps back to how it was before which may not have been all that pleasant from the horse's point of view and and he's left with is this ever going to happen again so that those short i'm gonna i'm gonna come i'm gonna do a short session i'm gonna walk away oh but look i'm back again and i think it's really important and the, and and also from a constructional approach and loopy training and, yes. and they, they go hand in hand i yes, think they do they are um they are cells that cannot be split any further down in anatomy right. but another piece of that is that there are so many fine data points in that loop of behavior so that if our learner is either bec becoming snatchy with the food or nippy yes. or grabby or anxious, we can see that so early on. And that's another training piece that we need to address really early on so that throughout the rest of their lives, that is a key component. And then if that becomes violated, let's say they an animal becoming grabby or, or snatchy with the food, there's something else going on there. If it is an operant yes. behavior that's been really well trained, where they know what our behavior is and what to expect of us, and we know what that partnership is, what to expect of them, then there's something else going on. And I really, really like that piece of it. So yes. um, there, one of the things that constructional training for me provides is the finer number of data points before I take the next step or my learner takes the next step that I'm considering uh, about welfare and health and whether or not this is the right behavior that's being taught right now for where they are in their lives. Um, so it's, it, it feels really good. It's astounding how much information is contained within what can appear to be just the simplest of behaviors. You know, just uh, having an animal orienting towards a target, the amount of information that sits within that action is huge. Yeah. I think the, some of the most profound videotape that um, you've shared in a lecture, and I think it was at a Clicker Expo conference, was when you were talking about slowing videotape down and being able to see structural or um, muscle movement problems that were being labeled as a problem behavior or yeah. a, pro a problem personality, that, that kind of piece fits perfectly into constructional training because it's another data point that yes. either allows us to move forward with or to stop and to address at the earliest point. Yeah, or to change completely what we're asking for. Absolutely. And again, you know, we, we, we come back to the choice and cooperation and, and all of these were agency words about what those data points can mean. We don't always know because sitting here looking, you know, at you or you looking at me, you can assume how I feel about the day or how I'm feeling physically. But until you ask questions, you don't know. That's right. Right. Those are data points. And of course, we ask questions through the behaviors that we're asking for Absolutely. and the responses that we get back from our individuals. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I, I really enjoyed during the weekend um, when we were talking about the pathological versus the constructional approach, of course, when you start uh, developing your shaping plan, it's not at all going to be the same shaping plan if you uh, are coming at things through the constructional lens rather than the pathological lens. It's, just, it's going to be a completely different shaping plan. And when you start developing your shaping plan with the constructional approach, one of the things that was suggested to us was to dream. Yes. To really think about what would be like the best thing you would want your animal to do. You know, just go 
crazy, dream, allow yourself to imagine the perfect animal you could have. And that when you start dreaming like this, when you ask yourself this type of question, it also will change your shaping plan. It will, it might give you a different starting point. I really like that idea that you know, just take a moment and really dream about what you would like your horse to do and go as far as you can. I love that part. Yes. And it, it may be harder than often we think because we're not good at dreaming or we dream within the restrictions of what we think we can do with an animal and the restrictions within a relationship. Well, I'd love to, I don't know, I'd love to take my horse out for long trail rides uh, through the backwoods, but, oh, I can't do that because, and then the, the becauses start to constrict the dreams. So. It doesn't mean that you're actually going to train what you're dreaming of necessarily, but I think the mere fact that you allow yourself to do this while you're developing your shaping plan will take you somewhere else. Yes, because you may discover that while you, you might think of what I want is to be able to take to go out for long trail rides with my horse, that there is a deeper meaning behind that that can be satisfied in other ways. Because maybe you're, maybe, maybe you don't have uh, trails available to you. And you don't have a horse trailer. And that's why you're not going out for long trail rides with your horse. Or maybe there's a lameness issue so that you can't go riding out for long trail rides with your horse. But in dreaming about what that would be like, that experience, there may be, you may discover, well, what is it about that experience that you yearn for that can be satisfied or you can reach for? Uh, through other starting points and other approaches. I, I agree. I think that that thought process um, and, and dream a dream process has a lot of opportunity for us to think about and be realistic about, like Alex was talking about, are we close enough to those trails? Do I need to spend more time building trailering, uh, tra trailering behavior or um, do I have the right equipment or is this the right horse? Do I need to look at, at you know, uh, a, a different riding horse uh, because my goals are. And from the work that I do, I often find that people are looking at uh, dr the dreams or the forecasting almost as goals that are not often rooted in the individual's capacity, whether it's the trainer's capacity to get there or the animal that we're working with. And, and the thing that constructional does, Dominique, very much like what you're talking about, is it, 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 lies, it lays out all those little building blocks or those pieces of behavior um, that we need to have uh, to put in place, whether it is trailering or um, maybe building up muscular um, strength for the endurance of going on a long ride, or for me, having good sitter bones so I can yeah. sit. Or maybe what you discover is that what it is about going for long rides with your horse is you just want time alone mm. with in the quiet with your horse. And oh, well, right now you could have that by just sitting in the hay with him while he eats his dinner. And that that's a piece of that. I, I really enjoyed that part. And we don't, I think we don't do it enough because then we'll say, oh, I'll have to train that. But it's just a way to think about different components really that you need to train uh, more than, you know, whatever at the end of it, it will be. But I think it, it helps to open up uh, some of those, comp well, even the word components, we, 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 we were discussing that huh? because, um, one of the other things that was mentioned is that we should think about actions instead of components. But let me just um, use the word components. Yes, because it's a still a good word. Yeah, it's still a good word. But because um, sometimes we feel blocked 
you know, we're, we're looking at something we want to train and we don't know what the components are. And I think the dream question can sometimes help us to identify those components. I, I agree. And the going with the dog dogs on leash walking um, situation, at one point in time, I had um, six dogs um, and chaos. And yes. um, one of which was a Labrador retriever, fully uh, bred, but he was a field bred, meaning for the hunt. I didn't understand what that meant at the time. And then I had a pit bull and I had a border collie. And then I had a beagle. Well, simple little house dogs. <laughs> nice little lap dogs. But but what happened <laughs> for me, Dominique, you go back to the, the, the really good thing about the dreaming of what walking with your dog, uh, the picture that you have in your head, any one of those individuals that I walked with, because of who they were as biological individuals in the world, it was completely different. Mm -hmm. Walking an eagle out in the world is walking a giant nose <laughs> on a leash yes. versus the, the dog that had been bred for hunting anything that fluttered, even the sound of a, you know, of a bird in a bush, his world changed or the border collie who was constantly watching the world. And my pit bull, who was just the love of my life, uh, who just wanted to sit on everybody's lap and loved everybody he met, but walking for them was, was completely different than my picture of walking, which is what Alex just mentioned being alone in nature. And how did I then satisfy with the, that with those different individuals? What I did was I found a great big park, um, dog park, that had lots of different kinds of environments where they could walk and be who they wanted to be in a safe environment, all the different ways they were. And I could walk among the wildflowers and up and down these hills. And, and uh, all of us, I think, got our needs met. So I think that that's really important that we should spend time dreaming about or having a, a strong visual image about the behaviors that we want to have with the individuals that we're living with. And then to understand, maybe I do need to go just sit like Alex said in the hay, which I did when I was a little girl with my horse. And I had a very strong flashback when you mentioned that um, yes. wonderful emotional attachment to that time. Um, but it helps us figure out how to get our needs met as well as addressing the needs of another. Yeah. And and I, I really like the idea that it could change your starting point. For me, that was very key, you know, that you really? may not if if you if you do this exercise, this process, it might change your starting point. Yeah. It's the beauty of the constructional design process. Um, because when you're looking at uh, behavior from that process, you're really looking at the needs of the one or really the needs of the two, two because yes. I never see it as a, just a one individual. Uh, so for a constructional piece, like what Dominique was saying was that, what do I need in order to either build the behavior or to have this need satisfied? And then what does this other, this other soul, this other spirit, this other individual have to learn? Or do I need to shift my expectations based on who they are, or is there common meeting ground and how do I get to that? And I love that about the constructional approach. Because it, it may actually help you to be, to become clearer about what the needs are. So you might not have even known really what your own needs were and how can you satisfy them if you haven't identified them? Or you may not have fully understood that a beagle is just a giant nose and a border collie wants to control everything in his environment. But if you just look at them as two dogs, because what do you know about the different breeds, so to speak, their needs are not going to be met. You're going to have frustrated animals. Yeah. And I think that's where, I think uh, that's where a lot of our negative labeling comes because we have this dream that often isn't matched with who either we are or whoever they, whatever they are. Yes. And what Mary was talking about, I thought was a real clarion bell for us to give ourselves permission to want a lot, but then also with the constructional piece to understand that 
if we if we have high expectations of behavior, then we need to, as the human side of the equation, really create a strong learning environment uh, and process so that our needs are met as well as the other thrives in that process. Yes. This is a good place to stop. We're about to change the subject, so we'll leave you here. There's a lot to chew on in this first part of our conversation with Lisa. Next time, we'll begin by asking Dominique what stood out for her in Science Camp. That's always a favorite question for me. What aha stood out for you as you think about the material that was covered? We had such a great weekend. Constructional training was just the launching point for a deep dive into stimulus control. We'll talk about what that means as the conversation continues, and we'll share some more highlights from the presentations that Mary Hunter, Dr. Jesus Rosal-Ruiz, and Michaela Hempen shared with us during science camp. Our science camp may be over, but this is just the start of the clinic season. Remember, at least for the first half of the year, the clinics will all be virtual. The first clinic in March is sold out, but there are others coming up that still have spaces available. So do check out the clinics. You can see the schedule at my website, theclickercenter.com, and I hope I'll see you at one of these events. In the meantime, stay safe and have fun with your horses.